0: Please be seated and open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 5. We're working our way through Genesis and we've, we've read the creation, the account of the creation of all things and the creation of mankind as the crowning work of God's creation. And we've read how mankind rebelled against God in the garden in Genesis 3 and was expelled from the garden. That meant uh, losing fellowship with God and therefore dying. Now, they didn't die physically that day but they were subject to death from then on, and they did die spiritually that day. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter two. He says, remember that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Being cut off spiritually from God leads to death. Immediately, however, in Genesis three, in pronouncing the curse, God promised deliverance through an offspring one who would come and defeat the serpent and save his people. We have to do it again. We're going to continue to do it as long as we need to. Look at Genesis 3.15 in your Bibles. This verse is, uh, is a, a foundational verse to our understanding of all of Scripture. We've you know, often summarized the entire Bible by saying that the Bible tells us about creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation. God made us we rebelled against him. He's been engaged ever since in a work of great salvation that will find its, its full completion on the day that Christ returns. That's the narrative. That's the truth that the Bible is, is uh, proclaiming to us. And that begins right here in Genesis 3.15. God, speaking to the serpent, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There are going to be a lot of people born to Adam and Eve and to their children and to their children's children, all of us descended from Adam and Eve. But of those descended from Adam and Eve, there will be two great peoples, great in terms of of large There will be those people who are the offspring of Eve, that is, who know God, believe in God, trust God, are being saved by God, pursuing holiness, that is, submission to God's word, repenting where they fail. And there will be a people in the world genetically descended from Adam and Eve, but who by their actions demonstrate that they are actually descended from the serpent. We know this is the correct reading of Genesis 3.15 because when we come to the Gospels, Jesus himself refers to those who are in rebellion against God as the offspring of the Serpent. John the Baptist uses that language as well. Jesus also in another place will will say to them expressly, God is not your father. Abraham is not your father. The devil is your father because you do the things he did. That that revelation here in Genesis 3.15, it's a, a paradigm through which we not only read all of Scripture, but we understand all of history. And Moses, the author of Genesis, as he goes on from Genesis 3, he's going to not just relate history to us. He's not just telling us, so then this happened and this happened, and these are the events that generally led up to the next event. He's going to, through his telling of history from this point, begin to unpack that enmity that we read about there in Genesis 3.15. You see, God and man were in fellowship with one another. But in the fall, in the rebellion, when Adam and Eve chose to believe the serpent rather than God, a fellowship was established with the serpent and broken with God. And God says, I am now going to break the fellowship that you have with the serpent and reestablish your fellowship with me. This is the the very first expression of the gospel in Scripture. The good news that God is not going to leave us in our sin, but he's going to deliver us from the judgment that we deserve. As we move from Genesis 3 into Genesis 4, we immediately begin to see that enmity. Cain and Abel, brothers, both born to Eve, and yet one is in submission to God and the other is in rebellion against God. And not only do they have this, this difference between them, But that difference causes Cain to murder Abel. There's enmity between the two of them. Now, Cain's line is going to go on, and we read about that last week. That's what Cain's genealogy is about. It's showing us what it it looks like to be the offspring of the serpents. This is how people who are the offspring of the serpent behave this morning. We transition from Cain's genealogy, or or the the line of Cain's offspring, to that of Seth. You see, Abel was the godly son, but he's been murdered. And we read last week, look at the end of chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, 25 in particular, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Seth now is the godly son, and this morning, I'm going to pray and read in a moment, we're going to read about the offspring of Seth, a godly line of people, the offspring of Eve from Genesis 3.15, and we're going to recognize some things about God and some things about the godly offspring. Let me pray and we'll read this morning Genesis 5. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you've called us together this morning and you're not only uh, present by your word, but your spirit is at work in the reading and the preaching of your word. And I pray that the spirit would be at work powerfully this morning. Father, that any that don't know Christ and aren't trusting Christ would come to understand what is true in the world. That in the proclamation of this word, they would recognize the voice of their shepherd. And as lost sheep, they would be gathered back into the fold. Father, I pray for those of us who know Christ this morning, that we would be both encouraged and admonished as we consider what it looks like to belong to you. Father, we pray that we would be a people who are living according to a gospel pattern, a gospel hope. Do this in our hearts and minds this morning, we pray, for our good and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Hear the reading of God's word, Genesis 5. This is in the back of your order of worship, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. Enish lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enish were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Three things we see this morning. At first, that God is about the business of keeping his promises. God is about the business of keeping his promises. Second, godly people walk according to a gospel pattern. Godly people walk according to a gospel pattern. And godly people live in gospel hope. Godly people live in In gospel hope. First, God is about the business of keeping his promises. There are two ways that we see God at work keeping his promises here. The way that your mind probably immediately jumps to, if you are a believer, if you have been in the church for very long, is that God keeps his promises with respect to salvation. And we're certainly going to see that in the text. But before we leap to God's keeping of his salvation promises, don't miss the fact that God keeps his promises of judgment. Remember that there are these two peoples in the world, the offspring of the serpent who are in rebellion against God and the offspring of Eve and the judgment against those who are ultimately in rebellion against God and will not believe in Jesus Christ, is to come under the wrath of God for eternity. Said another way, God keeps his promise to execute justice. Justice is something that none of us wants when it's when we're the ones who, against whom the, the justice needs to be executed. But when we're the victims, we, we very much want justice. So we, we need this reminder that justice is, in its own way, as far as it goes, justice is a good thing. All of us want justice when it comes to those who have sinned against us, offended us. But listen to me, there is a, a very fundamental reality And that reality is this, every single one of us has sinned against God. Every single one of us has offended a perfect, holy, infinite God. And that sin deserves justice. And God is a perfectly just God, and there will be justice for our sin. Now, there's two ways that Scripture reveals that justice is fulfilled, it's executed. It's it's executed against Jesus Christ, who willingly takes that judgment upon Himself in our place, so that those of us who trust in Him, who acknowledge that we're sinners in need of salvation, we get credit for the justice that He received, that, that was executed against Him. And for all of those who will not believe in Jesus Christ, the justice falls on them. They serve the penalty for their sin. Now listen, God makes it very clear in scripture. God's been revealing this truth in the world since Adam and Eve. We're gonna revisit that reality in a moment when we talk about how it is that God's faithfully at work in salvation in the world. But look at how he's at work here in reminding us of the truth of our sin and what our sin deserves, like hammer blows. In verse five, he died. In verse eight, he died. In verse eleven, he died. In verse fourteen, he died. In verse 15, uh, verse uh, that's seventeen, he died. In verse 20, he died. In verse 27, he died. Verse thirty one, he died. This is the godly line. This is the offspring of Eve, those whom God is saving, and yet, because of the fall, they die. In, in this repetition of this pattern of living and then dying, every generation dying, we see God reminding us of the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death, Paul reminds us in Romans. We see that God is busy about the promise of the curse. Even people in the godly line die. Death, listen, this is another reminder we need death is not native to humanity. We were not made to die, it's an aberration of who we are and how we were made and the purpose for which we were made death was not a part of adam and eve's reality before the fall nor was it guaranteed but life eternal life was held out to them it's a direct result of adam's sin and our inheritance our inherited sin in nature we die because we are descended from adam and eve and we are sinners some have even pointed out that in Genesis one twenty six, God says, uh, or we're told, that God created us in his image after his likeness. But look at verse uh, 3 in chapter 5. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. The language is reversed here. It's not image and likeness, it's likeness and image. And you say, that sounds... Like a, uh, a very small detail that couldn't possibly be important, but it's very likely that what's being communicated here is that though the image of God has not been destroyed in us by sin, it has been twisted by sin, and Adam is not capable of giving a bearing of fathering someone after the image of God that is unbroken and untwisted. He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. Now, his image is the image of God, and so that image is passed on to his son. But taking priority in this case, being reversed, and by being reversed, drawing attention to itself, it's first that Seth is in Adam's likeness. He's fallen. He's a sinner. This is what's true about us. Adam can only produce fallen offspring, and we too can only produce fallen offspring. It's been this way ever since the fall. And God is at work in the world executing justice and judgment against those who are in rebellion against him. He promised he would, and he's keeping that promise. It would be a, uh, a pretty bleak story, wouldn't it, if that was all that God had promised and to all that God was doing in the world? But thanks be to God, it's not all that he's doing in the world. He's also keeping the promise of sending an offspring who will deliver. The very fact that God appointed Seth is a mark of God's faithfulness. Remember back up in chapter 4, what we read earlier, verse 25, God has appointed for me another offspring, you see the line that through, through whom that godly offspring, that one particular offspring who will deliver them from the curse, that would have apparently been Abel, but Abel's been murdered. God doesn't abandon his work of salvation, but appoints another who's named Seth. The march of generations in the godly line is a history of God preserving his people despite death and the curse. The fact that there's a Seth is encouraging enough as it is, but after Seth, there is an Enosh, and after Enosh, a Kenan, and after Kenan, a Mahalalel, and after Mahalalel, a Jared, and after Jared, an Enoch, all the way down to Noah. God is at work in the world preserving the line through whom the Messiah will come. He's actively engaged in saving his people. The hope that we might one day escape death is glimpsed briefly in Enoch. Look at verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And then the pattern that you, you may have recognized as I was reading earlier, that pattern's broken for Enoch. It says Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Verse 24 Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Enoch doesn't die, but is, is translated into glory. There is this hope for the godly that death will be defeated. God is at work in the world, actively working for the salvation of his people. And then in my favorite part of the text, the hope of the curse being lifted is held by Lamech, the father of Noah. He's been taught the gospel and believes it. And before I read this, I, I want to make this clear to you. How is it that ten generations from Adam, Lamech knows the promise of Genesis 3.15? it's because he was taught that promise by his father who was taught the promise by his father there's a hope of the curse being lifted look at this hope expressed by lamech verse 29 he called out his name or he called his name he named his son noah saying out of the ground that the lord has cursed this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands if we go back to genesis 3 that was the curse pronounced against adam wasn't it that it would be painful to raise food from the ground. Lamech is looking forward. He's heard the promise that God is going to deliver from this. He's heard that that promise will be fulfilled by one who is born in his line. And he is, he's expecting it. He's expecting that promise to be fulfilled with Noah. As we'll see in the coming weeks, it's going to be fulfilled in Noah in a, a shadow sense in, a, in an illustration kind of way. Noah's not the Messiah, but he's, he's going to look a lot like the Messiah. And by looking like the Messiah, teach us about the Messiah. We see then that God keeps the promise of the curse. Death is the most constant reminder that the judgment of God is coming, and with every death of a loved one or an enemy, we observe the curse of the fall in action and are instructed once again that we are a fallen, sinful people deserving God's judgment and that all has not yet been made fully right. For those of us who know Christ, though we experience the death of our bodies, death has lost its sting, and we should not fear death. Our hearts should break for those who are not prepared for this judgment, and we should be eager to tell them about Christ. That's what those of us who know Christ ought to take away from this reminder. Yes, there's great joy for us, great hope for us in reading this reminder and saying that's not for us. The justice of God is not going to fall on us because of Jesus Christ, but it ought to go one step further for us, brothers and sisters. It ought to cause our hearts to break for those who do not know God, do not know Christ, and are not prepared for the perfect justice of God that's coming for them on the last day. And therefore, tell them. Tell them about it, because it doesn't have to fall on them. Jesus Christ has taken that judgment, believing in him, admitting that we're sinners is all that God requires of us in order to be saved by him. He also keeps the promise of his coming. He keeps the promise to send one who will deliver us from the curse and the serpent and his offspring. We're reminded here that God is keeping His promise to save actively at work in the world and in history to bring this salvation to bear in the hearts of His people. He kept His promise to send a seed, an offspring, one who would deliver us from the curse. And that deliverance has already happened in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, the hope that Noah expresses here, that hope has actually already been fulfilled. We aren't also waiting for that. It has happened. Jesus Christ has come. The promised seed has come and delivered us from the justice that we deserve, the judgment of God. And it's now being applied one heart at a time as each of the lost sheep of God's flock are being gathered together, hearing the gospel and believe it, believing it. A day is coming when Christ will return in judgment And that will mean a perfect end and fulfillment of all God's gospel promises. So rejoice, Christian. We serve a God who keeps his promises to save. That's the first thing that we need to see this morning. God is at work in the world, keeping his promises. That's the the character of our God. He keeps his promises. Justice is coming against sin, but salvation is held out to any who will believe in Christ and repent of their sin. Second, this morning, godly people walk according to a gospel pattern. Godly people walk according to a gospel pattern. Look at the marks of a godly people. They live according to the patterns God has established. Some of, of what we need to see in these verses this morning have to some of it has to be seen by holding it up against Cain's line. Remember, last week our text Cain's line is totally consumed with itself with its own comfort, with its own pleasure, with its own power and strength. When you come to the seventh person in that line, Lamech, it's a different Lamech, not Noah's father. That Lamech, the seventh in the line, boasts that he is greater than God, that he will He will get his own justice. He will not trust God to give justice, and his justice, in fact, is greater than God's justice. It is a line of people who give no thought to God, a line of people who are not interested in pursuing God. Look at at how his line is recorded. Remember this morning's text? uh, A person gives birth to a son, who receives a name and other sons and daughters are born to this person. This person lives and a fantastically long life. Look how Cain's line is recorded. It says that Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch when he built a city. He called the name of the city after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born a rod, and rod, father Mahujal, Mahujal, father Mahu- Methushel, and Methushel, father Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. No reference to sons and daughters, to a long life. It's only after we're told that Seth is given to Adam and Eve to replace Abel that we read at the end of chapter 4, the very last sentence, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's a contrast between these two lines. And when we, we recognize that contrast, we come into these verses this morning, we see that they are busy fulfilling the created mandate or the creation mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They're serving God in the way that they're living. They can't control how long they live, but in the law and in the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, in the, uh, the wisdom literature, we're told over and over again, as a general rule, those who follow God live long in the land. It's a promise in the Ten Commandments, one picked up on in the wisdom literature. The long lives here are meant to communicate to us that these are people who are following God, believing the promises. We see it again implicitly in the fact that by the time you get to Lamech in this line, which is the 10th generation, he still knows the promises and he's, he's naming his son according to the promises. Noah is actually taken from the Hebrew word that means rest. But look at what he says here. He says, uh, this is verse 29, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. Another way to translate that word is rest, but it's a different Hebrew word than the one that Noah's name is based off of. It's as if doubling it here. the uh, Lamech is, is emphasizing, doubling down on his conviction that God will be faithful to keep his promises. Everything about this line, in contrast to Cain's line, gives us reason to believe and demonstrates for us in particular ways how this line is walking according to God's word. Enoch, in particular, is singled out as walking with God. Uh, here, walking is almost certainly not meant to express some literal activity, uh, as though God appeared as a man and the two of them walked together. Uh, that's possible, I suppose, and God certainly does that elsewhere. He does that with Abraham, doesn't he? But almost certainly, this word is to be understood, this verb of walking, as a manner of life. A manner of life that when coupled with God, walked with God, means <laughs> righteousness. Righteousness. He was walking with God. He was living a life of righteousness. It's going to be used twice here of Enoch. It's going to be used of Noah in the next chapter. It will be used of the people of Judah, the tribe of Judah, in the prophets. The, the wisdom literature is going to go on and on about what it looks like to walk in the way of God. Paul's favorite, one of his favorite images, expressions is to exhort us to walk according to the calling to which we've been called. Not to walk like the Gentiles, but to walk in a manner worthy of God's. Almost 30 times across his different letters, Paul uses that expression. Godly people walk according to a godly pattern they know god and therefore they live according to god's word that's not to say they're sinless every one of these but enoch we're told died they are sinners but they are repenting of their sin and pursuing righteousness at the center of it more than anything they are believing the promises and they're telling the next generation about that promise and encouraging them to believe the promise. Godly people walk according to a gospel pattern. How did Enoch walk with God? He didn't have scripture. Enoch is prior to uh, even the writing of the book of Genesis. But he had the revealed word of God passed down from generation to generation, and he lived not only in accordance with that word, but cherishing it. It's sort of implied, isn't it? Again, we get to Lamech and he knows the promise. We also see it implied in chapter four though, don't we? Because remember Cain and Abel both came to God, both made offerings. Abel's was a animal sacrifice that was blood in his offering. Cain's was food. It was just uh, plants from the ground. And remember, God doesn't receive his offering. Do you remember what God says to him? He says, Cain, what's the matter? if you do well, will you not be accepted? See, Adam and Eve have taught Cain and Abel who God is and what God is doing and what it looks like to worship God according to his word. Abel does what God tells us to do. Cain rebels. And even when God comes and patiently corrects, Cain refuses to repent. How did Enoch walk with God? He lived as though God were next to him at all times. He walked according to God's word. God has kept and continues to keep his gospel promises. And the people he is saving walk according to the pattern he gives us. It's, as I said earlier, a favorite saying of Paul. Walking is a manner of life. God, if he is our constant companion, and he is, Not merely because He's omnipresent. And I don't know about you, but too often I fall into that pattern of thinking that God is always with me because He's everywhere, so there's nowhere you can go to escape Him. And though that's true, there's a much better truth. God is always with us because those of us who are trusting in Christ and repenting of our sin are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Yes, God is omnipresent, but brothers, sisters, God lives in you. If God is our constant companion, then let us live as those who are in fellowship with him, walking with him, and he with us. Finally this morning, godly people live in a gospel hope. It's my favorite note in these verses today that Lamech believes Noah is the Messiah. It betrays a wonderful gospel hope in Lamech. By naming him Noah, he's emphasizing, as I said earlier, his faith in the rest that's promised by God and that he knows is coming. Don't miss that Lamech believes and has accepted that this life is a life under the curse and filled with painful toil. Listen, if, you, if your experience of Christianity, if what you've heard other people say about christianity that christianity is a religion there that you come to god and you say the right things and your life is better everything gets better that's a falsehood that is not the christian faith not unless we we are very careful to define what better is because christ himself told us didn't he he told us that we would suffer for him Though he has promised us salvation in the end and given us his spirit now, though we've been resurrected already from death to life spiritually, we still die physically. And there is enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Eve, and we still live in that. Lamech knows this. It's why he cries out. He he acknowledges that we are under a curse and that we have work and painful toil that has been laid on us because of that curse but he looks to god for rescue from that curse and nowhere else there's an implicit impatient in, impatience in the words this one out of the ground that the lord has cursed this one shall bring us relief the last one didn't i didn't this one will there's an urgency to Lamech naming his son Noah that I think is hand-in-hand is hand with absolutely identical to John at the end of Revelation who having said all cries out, Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. There is a hope in the gospel Taken together with Enoch and the simple pattern of life in every generation of this genealogy, it's a portrait of a people living under the curse, in fellowship with God, believing the promises and passing them down from one generation to another as they look earnestly for the promised seed. It's a gospel hope and an anticipation that will be fulfilled will not be fulfilled until Christ is born. and explains why those to whom... The message came of the birth of a child rushed to worship him and sing hosannas to the King of Glory. Brothers and sisters, through the promised offspring that has come and done all that is required for our salvation, the application of that salvation is still unfolding even today. There's a hope that remains, and we ought to live in that hope. We ought to believe the promises of God, expect them to be fulfilled in our generation. By the way, you see this in the New Testament. There's an expectation among the New Testament authors that their generation will be when Christ returns. Don't think of it as a mistake. It's not a mistake. Every generation ought to believe it's this one. It's my generation. We are not foolish for believing and hoping Christ will come again before we die. It's not merely a a desire to miss the experience of death, but a desire to be Finally united in perfection with God forever. We ought to pass this hope down to our children and our children's children and express this hope of ours that will not be disappointed. We do not despair. Jesus Christ is coming again to make all things new. Let's pray.